Now let's open our Bibles again to the book of Romans, the eighth chapter, verses 28 through 30. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word is the prayer of our hearts. Romans 8, 28, this is the word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I will remind you that the context in which this great and precious series of promises comes to us is the context in which the Apostle Paul dwells upon the fallenness of this world. And as we saw last time, we live in a world in which the world itself is fallen, having fallen with Adam in his first transgression. And so the world itself is said to groan, groan under the, the effects of the fall, longing for the freedom of the children of God that will, that will come when Jesus returns. The creation groans, we are said to groan in Romans chapter 8. And we are even told that the Holy Spirit helps us with those groans that cannot be uttered. Those things that are so perplexing and so deep that we do not even know how to put them into words. The Holy Spirit helps us with those. And so as we read Romans 8.28 and following, it should be clear to us that in the midst of what Murray calls a symphony of sighs, we groan for the glory to be revealed in the midst of this Christian life in a fallen world, but that these promises are here to support us. And so, in this context, we learn immediately that the doctrines of predestination and of electing grace are not revealed to trouble us. They are revealed to comfort us. There is much about the great doctrine of predestination and of election that will perplex, but it is clearly taught in the Word of God. And the Christian is called to bow his mind and heart to the sacred scriptures. If we do not understand predestination and election, then we do not understand that salvation is altogether by grace. All the way through the history of the Christian church, there have been those who have attempted to detract from this, and it has led to heresy after heresy. This is at the core of our faith, this great doctrine of God's predestinating grace. And again, to underscore, predestination and election are not revealed in order to perturb our minds with questions that we cannot answer. Let God be God. He is alone the Lord. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? But these things are revealed so that we may understand that behind our salvation is a sovereign decree of God, that he loves his people, he saves his people, he keeps his people, and that in the midst of the fallenness of this world and all of the trials that we are called upon to endure as the people of God, 
Whether it be the ordinary trials of everyday life, something extraordinary or even persecution, that behind it all is God's purpose and plan that is good and that is right, even when it perplexes us and we do not understand. Now sometimes this text has been called the golden chain. Some of the Puritans call it the golden chain. And it is a chain. One link in the next, in the next, in the next, all in logical order. It is a golden chain and it is golden. This is a text upon which we should dwell often. We should take this promise to heart and we should dwell upon in the midst of the sorrows and sadness of the fallen world in which we live. For God's people, as we groan, here is the ground upon which our assurance and our security and our comforts are founded. Come what may. And that's his point. That no matter how difficult God's plan for your life may be in his love and mercy, that come what may, God has a good, a loving, a gracious, a merciful purpose for us as people. So here we find a promise to all who love God, which is another way of saying to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, in Vespers this past week, as we've been working our way through the book of Job, I made the point, as we were looking at a speech of Bildad, that it is, it is possible to say the right thing in the wrong way, or to apply true doctrine in a, in a very ineffective and misleading way. And one thing we never want to do is to minimize someone else's burdens and trials, which is what Job's three friends do, among other things. But as I have also said in those Vesper sermons, when I am going through the difficulties of life, when I'm in the midst of hardship and trial and the inexplicable, I want you to come to me with the sovereignty of God. I want you to come to me and speak about God's decree and plan and purpose. I want you to quote Romans 8.28 to me. This is the promise that my heart needs to hear. But don't try to make it comprehensible. And this is the great problem of Job's three friends. They attempt to make Job's suffering comprehensible. Well, folks, there is just much in this world that is not comprehensible to us. And when we attempt to make it comprehensible, we take out of the equation the incomprehensibility of God, and that is the God who is. The point is, we trust Him no matter what. We trust Him in the midst of the troubles. We believe that His purpose for us is sound and good and beautiful, even when those things that we endure seem to contradict that statement. So what we need to do tonight is simply to survey these verses I'm contemplating hovering over them for a while. I haven't decided yet, but we need to just just survey them so that we understand precisely what Paul is saying. So let's begin with the promise to all who love God. The promise to all who love God. And we read again verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together together for good for those who are called according to God's sovereign purpose. All things. 
obviously there are no restrictions. He doesn't say a few things, some things, or even most things, but all things. The context, remember, is that of the sinful world, which is universally fallen. In the midst of that universally fallen world, all things are in God's sovereign hand, and He is working them for the good of His people, His glory, the good of His kingdom, and the good of you, His people. All the elements work together for good, which is a powerful affirmation of God's providence. God's works of providence are His most holy, powerful, working in this world to execute His divine decrees and bring about that purpose and plan that He has for you and for me. And as God's plan is comprehensive, all-embracing, so all things in the believer's life are working in that plan for good. That's what the promise tells us. Ultimately, not one detail of our lives escape this working out for good. Ultimately, not one difficulty escapes God's purpose and plan that His purpose for us is good. Not even the things that might appear the opposite. That is what the text says. And this is true for those upon whom God has extended His saving call, for those who are called according to His purpose, verse 28 says. Our goal is guaranteed by the one who calls. The good goal of God in our lives is certain because of the God who has extended His call to us. The call flows from God's predestinating decree and extends to glorification. It is according to God's purpose. And so, as you are in the midst of trouble and trial, it is extremely important that we as God's people think of His predestination according to grace. That He actually has a people whom He loves and has chosen, and that He secures in the midst of these trials for eternal life. So he speaks of purpose, just as in chapter 9 of Romans he speaks in verse 11, though there were not yet born, speaking of the children, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. You remember how it puts it in the Ephesian, in the Ephesian epistle, Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 11 in particular, in which the Apostle Paul says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now my friends, it could not be more extensive than that, could it? We have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. He works, that's providence, all things, that's the extent of his moral government according to the counsel of his will, that's his divine decree. Or if we were to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, that he has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
Now that's what he means, Paul does, in Romans 8.28 when he speaks of God's purpose. He means that God comprehensively, sovereignly has a plan and has a purpose for all things that includes that which is good for his people. Now that moves us then to the second thing we want to see in Romans 8.28 and following. The links in the chain of God's purpose. The links in the chain. What are those links? Well, the first link in the chain is foreknowledge. We find it in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge. Now, the term foreknowledge can mean prevision, depending upon the context, but that does not, just a a bare prevision does not suit the context here. There's certainly nothing here about foreseen faith or merit. John Wesley's view of this passage is that God looked through the corridor of time to see who would believe and who would not believe, and that on the basis of a foreseen faith, just knowing how someone would respond to the gospel, that that's what this foreknowledge is all about. But that simply cannot be. The text does not say he foreknew something about us. The text does not say he foreknew faith or merit on our part. It does not say what he foreknew, but whom he foreknew. He foreknew people, individuals. So what is he getting at here? What is Paul teaching us? Well, of course, the word know in the sacred scriptures is often a synonym for love. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, using that Hebrew word, yadai, know, you have I known of all the peoples of the earth. Now, it's a synonym for chose. So that I think it's the NIV, some of you may have an NIV in front of you, actually says, you have I chosen of all the peoples of the earth. That's a good translation because it's a synonym. To know is to set love upon In Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, as the Apostle Paul is amazed at the grace that has been shown to him in saving him when he was a persecutor of the church, the Apostle Paul says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, so we are known. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 19, The apostle puts it this way, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. doesn't mean he knows something about them. It means that he loves them. So when the apostle Paul in verse 29 of Romans 8 says, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, it does not mean bare prescience, bare foreknowledge, But it means a deep, intimate love with which he has known you, his people, in his eternal and sovereign counsels before ever the world was. Before you were born, before you had done good or evil, Before you had ever dangled your toes in a creek or walked upon the seashore, God loved you, set his everlasting and eternal love upon you, 
And the Apostle Paul wants you to draw strength from this in the midst of a world of sighing. It means here to set his love upon from all eternity. So we could paraphrase, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he knew, God knew, for those upon whom he set his love in eternity past, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so the word predestination is used in verse 29. It's not a word that should frighten us. It's a very precious word. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Distinguishing sovereign love, predestination, the word predestination, includes the goal that God has for those whom he has so loved. Remarkably, conformity to the image of God's own Son is the goal. And so, we have a clue, don't we, in the midst of our troubles? Why is, why is in God's providence this hardship in my life? Why is he taking me through this? Well, who has known the mind of the Lord? I know that he loves me. I know the purpose is good. I know it's for his glory. But I also know that it's part of his plan of conforming me to the image of his own son. That I can know. On the authority of God's word, and so can you. So that in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of the day in which Christ will come again. And in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. All things are subjected to himself, and we will be transformed to be like his glorious body. So we are predestined. Conformity to Christ in his exaltation is the goal, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers, That Christ might be the firstborn means priority. Firstborn does not mean he had a beginning. He is the eternal God. He had no beginning. It means that he has the priority, that he has the supremacy. Ultimately, the terminal point in the decree of God, even as it relates to you, is the honor and supremacy of the glory of the Son of God. I think I should repeat that on a sleepy Sunday evening. That the point, the terminal point in the decree of God, even as it relates to you, is the honor, supremacy, and glory of Christ. So whatever he's doing in our lives, however hard the road may be, It is the glory of Christ in conformity to his image, which is the ultimate goal, the exaltation of the Son. And that also says to me, therefore, since that is the ultimate goal to which he's leading my life, then in the midst of the hardship, I want to overtly and consciously glorify the Son, don't you? There are so many things 
that as a minister of the gospel and pastor of God's people, I would certainly like to deliver you from. I can't do it. So many hearts need, so many sorrows, so many deep trials, so many things that are incomprehensible. But if I could remove you from those things, I would be removing you from the goal, wouldn't I? Which is conformity to the image of Christ and the exaltation of the Son of God. So I repeat it again. Since that's the goal, then the one thing I need to keep my gaze upon in the midst of trouble and sorrow and sadness and sighing is the glory of Jesus Christ in the way in which I respond. I cannot control what comes to me. I cannot control what may be said about me or even said to me. I cannot control those things that are hard. I cannot control those things that hurt. But by the grace of God, I can learn to glorify Jesus Christ, which is God's ultimate goal for my life. Stemming then from the pretemporal decree are now the links in our salvation that happen in time. And the first of those links is calling. We find it in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Calling, justification, glorification of his people. You see how all of these elements form one unified, coherent, unbreakable golden chain. One logical golden chain. And so we have here divine monergism that is stressed. That it is all of grace from first to last. You don't call yourself out of darkness, do you? God calls you out of darkness into the kingdom of his own dear son. Calling, justification, glorification are the outworking of God's predestinating decree. So that your salvation is all of grace from first to last. Can you not see how Paul intends this to be a grand word of comfort for God's people as we groan under the fallenness of this world? Yes, I groan, but I'm called. John Bunyan, there he is in prison. He can't get out, but he was called. Nicholas Ridley and Latimer burned at the stake. Was that God's plan for them? Yeah, it was. They glorified the Son through it. They were called. They couldn't control what men did to them. But they were called. And so, divine monergism. Pure, sovereign grace. Calling here, always in Paul, by the word, the term call means the effectual call. There is the call that goes out in the gospel. We go into the world and we preach the gospel indiscriminately to all creatures. We say, believe in Christ and you will be saved. But when God actually takes that gospel message to the heart, opens the heart and draws the sinner to himself, that's the effectual call. There is that that lightning that brightens the whole sky, but there also is that lightning that strikes its object. That's the effectual call. And that's what Paul the Apostle means here by calling, the effectual call. Our catechism sums it up very well. 
Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. That's the effectual call. Now you know this calling extends into eternity to come. He calls us out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of his own dear son, and that calling continues on to eternity to come. It is a divine tractor beam, so to speak, that takes us all the way to heaven. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just actually to, to, to choose a, a passage of many, as the Apostle Paul is greeting and offering thanksgiving for the Corinthian church, he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 and following, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And there you have the Apostle Paul saying this effectual call is a calling that extends all the way to the revelation of Christ, the return of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus, as he calls it here. And so in the midst of your struggles and trials, you're called That calling is not going to go away. That calling will remain. You are the Lord's, no matter what comes. You are called. So the relationship of call to the end of time is the perseverance of the saints and the promise, ultimately, of the glorification found in the text. But before we get there, we also see justification in the golden chain. And so he says reading verses 29 and 30 together again, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified. Now of course that was this morning's sermon where we dwelt upon Galatians the third chapter and Jesus Christ bearing our sin and taking our debt and paying the penalty for our sin, already thoroughly discussed by the Apostle Paul through the book of Romans, as we have seen time and again. Again, our catechism sums up well what Paul is teaching here. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And I believe that this is so important, and you have so understood it that there's even a t-shirt to tell you. (laughs) This forms our breastplate of righteousness in the fight. When the evil one comes against us and stands against us and accuses us, And we stand in the righteousness of Christ, completely clothed in His perfection. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation and redemption? It's the only way to stand in the day of judgment. But the Apostle Paul wants you also to see that this is the way of getting through struggles and trials. 
because you're constantly focused upon the truth and reality of your acceptance with God. Men do not accept you. The world does not accept you. Your circumstances seem to shove you away. But God accepts you in Christ. He's loved you from eternity. He's purposed your conformity to His own Son. He's called you out of darkness. He's justified you before His court of law. So in the midst of it all, I say, Lord, I don't get it, but I'm yours. No one can take that from me. No one can remove justification that has been graciously granted to me in Christ. I belong to Him. And then he says, we need to think all the way to the end where God's people are going to be glorified. And so he says, again verse 30, those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Though it is future, it is stated as if it were already something that has taken place. Did you notice that? It's well translated here, glorified. Sandy and Hedlum, in their old commentary, they say the step implied, the, the word that is translated here, glorified, edodoxin, is both complete and certain in the divine counsels. So they take this word, edodoxin, they say glorified. It's so certain that it's stated by Paul as if it were already accomplished. My, that's mind-boggling and truly wonderful. Because the promise of the Apostle Paul here is you do sigh, you do suffer, you suffer now, but your glorification is absolutely certain. I'm often amazed at how the Apostle Paul thinks of trouble. It's amazing to me when he says, for example, I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I'm often amazed in 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter, when he dwells upon the the difficulty of his own ministry. And he concludes by saying, we do not lose heart. Though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, for the slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And you know what amazes me about this? It's that the Apostle Paul also in 2 Corinthians, can speak, and this is mid-career for him. He hasn't even gone over, over through his entire life. And he says in chapter 11, about verse 23, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, speaking of his own ministry, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, 
in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And the Apostle Paul, having recounted what must be only a partial catalog of his suffering, says it's a slight momentary affliction. Paul's not minimizing difficulty and trouble here. What Paul is doing is reminding us that as God calls his predestined people, justifies them, and moves them toward glorification, that the afflictions of this world are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So that those things that await us are so grand and glorious and great that we keep our gaze there. He uses the word scopane. It's a word that was used sometimes of archers who sent their arrow to the bullseye. We keep our eye on the bullseye. Because these things that we now endure are just preparing for us such an outstanding and glorious exaltation of the Son and the glorification of our own lives. One of these days we will be able to look back and say, you know, Paul was right. They were light and momentary afflictions. And I have an eternity to worship God free from these things. Now, you know I'm not minimizing trouble. I'm maximizing grace. Though future, he states, our glorification as if it has taken place. You suffer now, but your glorification is absolutely certain. And the Westminster Standards, the Catechism says, At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. And if my momentary afflictions prepare me to know and serve and enjoy God to all eternity, then I have to be willing to bow and say they're worth it all. John Murray said this, and I can't say it better. In extending encouragement and support to the people of God in their sufferings and adversities, groanings and infirmities, the apostle has reached this triumphant conclusion. He has shown how the present pilgrimage of the people of God falls into its place in that determinate and undefeatable plan of God that is bounded by two foci, the sovereign love of God in his eternal counsel and the glorification with Christ in the age to come. It is when they apprehend by faith this panorama that stretches from the love of God before times eternal to the grand finale of the redemptive process that the sufferings of this present time are viewed in their true perspective and are seen subspecie eternitatis as a subspecie of eternity. To be but the circumstances of pilgrimage to and preconditions of a glory to be revealed so great in its weight that the tribulations are not worthy of comparison.
Whate'er my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn a new sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all.